0: Alright guys, well welcome to another episode of the Tax Court Podcast. Today we are doing part three of our deference segment and uh, I am doing the intro for you know what may be the last time, unless you guys request otherwise, go ahead and submit your votes. Um, unless you're disappointed and you're, you're really tired of hearing me kick it off uh, and you want Rick back um we'll do that so uh we're again we're here to talk about part three of deference rick how you doing
1: good i'm doing good how about you
0: doing great i'm doing great and uh ready to get into this i i think the the last two parts one and two have been very informative uh for for our listeners and i think that uh they'll enjoy part three as we cap it all off today too uh and i encourage you guys to go back and listen to parts one and two if you're just catching in on this one because i think that I'm not sure you can get a better summary. uh, And obviously it's a lot easier than reading um, uh, than, than Rick's going to give you here. And again, part three, he's going to do the heavy lifting. I'll chime in from time to time. uh, But by and large, this is kind of his area and he's recently done a lot in this area. so we just felt again, that it was his, his, uh, his baby to, to carry uh, across the finish line. So uh, Rick, you want to go ahead and kick it off and get into this for the uh, final time?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks Lee. Um, let me really quickly uh, give a quick recap of part two. In part two, we discussed three cases Mayo Foundation, Brandex, and Home Concrete. And um, just without getting into too much detail, because you guys can go listen to um, that last episode, but Mayo basically held that National Muffler no longer applies in a tax context in determining whether to um, give deference to Treasury regulations. It also got rid of the distinction between implicit grants of authority from Congress and explicit grants of authority from Congress and said it's all under Chevron and you know there's absolutely no difference. And then I think the biggies that we did on um, the last episode were Brand X and Home Concrete and the rule that really came out of those two cases – was that judicial precedent only applies, stare decisis only applies to a prior judicial ruling on the statute issue that there's a conflicting reg on if that prior judicial precedent um, stated that or found, it didn't have to state if it was pre-Chevron, found that its ruling came from you know the unambiguous terms of the statute. And then Lee gave us a quick thing on how Home Concrete, the substantive law in that, um, Recently, got um, overturned by an act of Congress a couple weeks ago, uh, which is pretty interesting. But that's going to lead us into our next set of cases, or our next case, which we've referenced in the last two podcasts, which is uh, Sabina Loving et al. v. Internal Revenue Service. And this is actually a DC Circuit case. And What this case deals with is a new IRS regulation for paid tax preparers requiring tax preparers to uh, maintain certain CLEs, register with the IRS, and perform certain other duties. And by paid tax preparers, we're talking about accountants, CPAs who prepare tax returns. And so the statutory authority for this regulation came from 31 U.S.C. Section 330, and so that's an 1884 statute, and that statute authorized the IRS to regulate the practice of representatives or persons before the Department of Treasury. And so the question at issue in this case was whether the IRS's statutory authority to regulate the practice of representatives of persons before the Department of Treasury Encompasses the authority to regulate tax return preparers. Um, we have longstanding regs covering attorneys and CPAs, etc. In a- adversarial proceedings against the IRS, these are sometimes called covered individuals. But the plaintiffs here were three tax return preparers. They weren't attorneys uh, representing a client before the IRS in an audit. Let's say. So on summary judgment, the district court ruled in the plaintiff's favor, and uh, the district court permanently enjoined the regulation. And so like I said, the question here is whether the IRS has authority to regulate tax return preparers under Section 330, which specifically spoke of um, representatives of persons before the Department of Revenue. And so the IRS argued, yeah, we do. At the circuit level, they said, this statute gives us that authority and um, we're filling the gap in the statute for paid tax preparers by drafting these regulations. And so basically the circuit court applied a Chevron test to see if they needed to respect this regulation. And so the court said, under the Chevron step one analysis, in determining whether a statute is ambiguous and in ultimately determining whether the agency interpretation is permissible or instead is foreclosed by the statute, we must employ all the tools of statutory interpretation, including text, structure, purpose, and legislative history. So why are we going over this case? It's because it does a great step one analysis. And so I thought it would be a great case to discuss um, on this podcast. So the first thing the court does is determine whether tax return preparers are representatives. And the court goes through um, a whole analysis. They cite to a um, bunch of law dictionaries, etc., and basically come up with the fact that these paid tax return preparers aren't representatives. They aren't paid agents um, representing clients before the IRS. So on that first issue no, not representatives. And remember, the statute talks about representatives before the Department of Treasury. The next thing the court went into is, is this practice before the Department of Treasury? Because once again, the statute discusses practice before the Department of Treasury. And once again, the court went through an analysis and found no. Um, And they actually said, and This is actually a pretty good quote. Although the exact scope of practice before a court or agency varies depending on context, to practice before a court or agency ordinarily refers to practice during an investigation, adversarial hearing, or other adjudicative proceeding. So basically talking about during an audit, an appeal, etc. Next, the circuit court looked at the legislative history of Section 330, And basically looking at the legislative history said that this statute in 1884 was enacted as part of a War Department appropriation for horses and other property lost in the military service. And that the original language uh, plainly would not encompass tax return preparers. Fourth of all, the court looked at the broader statutory framework in which this statute is located. And so in this broader statutory framework, the court found that there are specific statutes covering tax return preparers and that these statutes have been amended over the years. And so the court says that um, given the IRS's view here, um, all those amendments would have been completely unnecessary because, you know, The IRS had carte blanche to um, prescribe regulations already covering all of that stuff, and that just doesn't make sense. Uh, Fifth, the court discusses the nature and scope of the authority being claimed by the IRS, and here they say the Supreme Court has stated that courts should not lightly presume congressional intent to implicitly delegate decisions of major economic and political significance to agencies. And now this is actually important for the next case we're going to discuss, Um, but they basically say that here in this case and basically say uh, they're not sure that Congress had actually implicitly given this power to the IRS. And finally, the court said the IRS has taken this position contrary to every position it's ever taken prior to 2011 and then cites a number of contrary positions the IRS had taken And the court notes that the agency is free to change its interpretation of a statute that it administers, but that this is pretty telling here. And so basically, the court found that the regulation here fails um, Chevron step one. It says that, in our judgment, the traditional tools of statutory interpretation, including the statute's text, history, structure, and context, foreclose and render unreasonable the IRS's interpretation of Section 330 put it in Chevron parlance, the IRS interpretation fails at Chevron step one because it is foreclosed by the statute. And funny enough, the court goes on to say in any event, the IRS's interpretation would also fail at Chevron step two because it is unreasonable in light of the statute's text, history, structure, and context. So a really good case to sort of see how courts go through a Chevron step one analysis.
0: So Rick, you know, what I guess what I'm taking away from this, from this loving case, and, and just you know, fill me in here if I'm wrong, but I mean, I had a question earlier, and we talked about this about you know exactly what the courts are going to go through when they perform this this Chevron step one analysis, and um, you know, you talked about it here, and, and when when the court does this this step one analysis, and they go through the you know, using the, the normal Normal canons or whatever rules for statutory construction, whatever term that the the, you know the courts used in some of these decisions we cited earlier, um, the normal tools of traditional tools of statutory construction, they essentially went through everything here. I mean, this was all encompassing, right? They went through legislative history. They went through uh, they looked at the statute's language in in the context of the code itself. Uh, They even went through. I mean, they even went through the IRS's prior positions the prior positions taken by the IRS in, in in similar situations and on this issue. I mean, am I hearing that right? So is it is this really kind of the seminal case for kind of how to show how a step one analysis, how broad it can be?
1: Uh, yeah, it, it really is a great case. I'm, I'm not going to go as far as say it's a seminal case just because it's so recent. It's a 2014 D.C. Circuit opinion. But it's a great case, and that's why I decided to include it in um, in my presentation and in this podcast. Um, I thought it did just a phenomenal job of
0: actually explaining that question that you had all the
1: way back in part one
0: okay okay great so yeah so we so and, and again we know obviously from this legislative history as far as being part of the step one analysis is alive and well so um, you know, and that was another question I had. So this, that's great. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Great. Oh, and, and one more thing, Rick, real quick before we move on. Um, so this, there was a case. There was a case last year, and I think it was it was Ridgely v. Lou. Uh, I'm not sure if that's the right. I think that's the right name, Ridgely or Ridley v. Lou. That uh, essentially it was based on Loving, right? And that's kind of why we don't have to have that circ- that big huge block. Uh, underneath uh, our emails anymore of, of for circular two thirty, isn't that right? Isn't that kind of what that was? Yeah, why that, why that yeah,
1: happened? yeah. You're right there, Lee. That that is right. I don't I don't have the site in front of me or even um, the name of it. I think you're right though on Ridgely v. Liu. I, I know it's definitely v. Liu because of the Treasury Secretary uh, Jack Liu. But yeah, you're right. Uh, just another interesting point to come out of that Loving case. Awesome.
0: Okay. Great.
1: Great. And so now, Lee, we're going to finally do our last case, which is a case that's very recent. It's King v. Burwell. And this is literally from a few weeks ago. It was our, it was decided on June 25th, 2015. And a lot of you guys know this case because it's one of the Affordable Care Act cases. So let me give a brief description of what's happening and why it's relevant to US Tax Court podcast and deference. So basically, under the Affordable Care Act, you have to buy health insurance. If you don't, and there's certain criteria, there's a tax for not buying health insurance if you meet this criteria and don't buy it. So basically, in the case, or under the Affordable Care Act, I should say, um, you don't have to buy health insurance and you won't get uh, penalized if the cost of the health insurance exceeds 8% of the individual, the taxpayer's income, but there are refundable credits to those individuals who have a household income between 100% and 400% of the federal poverty line. So those are two big parts of the Affordable Care Act. Another big part of the Affordable Care Act is it creates state exchanges, and these state exchanges allow for Uh, the shopping of insurance and to purchase insurance, health insurance. The tax credits available to those people in between 104%, 400% of the poverty line are available to anyone who enrolls in health insurance through one of these state exchanges. And there's an IRS regulation on point here, which interprets the statute and allows the tax credit to any individual, whether bought whether they bought insurance through a federal or a state exchange. And um, why is this important? Because there's many states that don't have state exchanges. There's plenty of governors and plenty of states that didn't want to enact state exchanges due to political affiliation, political reasons. Um, Pardon?
0: I was going to say, yeah, but I'm sitting in one of them. That's right.
1: Yep. Yep. And so this case is based in Virginia. Virginia didn't institute a state exchange. And so there was a federal exchange put in place in Virginia. And so basically, in this case, what we have is the petitioners don't want to purchase health insurance. And they don't have to because the cost would be greater than 8% of their income, right? So they're they're exempt from purchasing it and not getting hit. However, the problem is, if they qualify for these tax credits, then the cost of the health insurance is going to bring them below the 8% of their income, and they're going to get hit and have to purchase this this insurance will get hit with this penalty. So basically, the question is, do they qualify for these tax credits? The petitioners arguing that they don't qualify for the tax credits because they're in a state with a federal exchange and not a state exchange, and tax credits only apply to state exchanges, and that the regulation is not a permissible interpretation of the statute. So that's why it's relevant to this deference podcast we're doing. It's the regulation should it be granted deference, and obviously this is a pretty important case. It's it got to the Supreme Court, got a lot of press, a lot of coverage. But let's go through what the Supreme Court said in this case. Well, let actually before I do that, let me state this: that the district court dismissed the suit, holding that the act was unambiguous, uh, and therefore holding for the petitioners. Right, but then the Circuit Court. And it was the Fourth Circuit said that the statute was ambiguous and applied chevron deference and then deferred to the Treasury regulation and said that it's good. So that went against petitioners. Then it got kicked up to the Supreme Court. And so now the Supreme Court um, deals with it. And Supreme Court starts out by saying, OK, uh, Circuit Court did chevron deference. Uh, we need to see whether we need to apply chevron deference, Right. And so they say generally the court will apply a two-step Chevron framework to the issue to an issue like this. But what they say, and this is an important part, but Chevron does not provide the appropriate framework for a case like this. And so why do they say that? Um, and this goes back to what we discussed in Loving just recently, the fifth factor that they discussed in Loving, which said that some issues of law are bigger than – Agency interpretation. Congress never intended to implicitly grant an agency that kind of authority because it's just it. It's so much about public interest, and it's just bigger than that. And so, uh, what the court says is, application of the credits is a question of deep economic and political significance. So, right here, the courts created another exception or an exception to Chevron deference. Right, Chevron deference doesn't apply where you have a question of deep economic and political significance. And let's be honest here. The Affordable Care Act, it's a divisive issue in the country right now. It's in all the newspapers. You know, it's a huge issue in our country today, right, Lee?
0: Um, oh, yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, and so the court says if Congress had wanted to assign the question to an agency, it would have done so express, expressly, but it didn't here. And it's unlikely that Congress would have delegated this authority to the IRS because the IRS doesn't have the experience in drafting health insurance policy. So why would Congress assign this responsibility to the IRS? This, at the end of the day, is a health insurance question, right? It's not really a tax question, and the IRS doesn't have any, you know, any experience in health insurance and um, in implementing a health insurance exchange and policy, all that other stuff. So then basically the court goes on to say that the court must determine the correct reading of the statute. And the phrase, an exchange established by the state, is ambiguous. And having, and having read the language in the context of the overall statute, because remember, this is just one line in a giant, giant act, right? Um, having read just this one line in the context of the overall act, that the provision requiring the Secretary of Health and Human Services to establish such an exchange, meaning a federal exchange, if the state doesn't, that that language is the same as basically the state exchange. And by using such exchange, that term such exchange, for the Secretary of Health and Human Services, the act was basically saying that state and federal exchanges must be the same. So uh, given the ambiguity, now the court looks at the interpretation at the interpretation within the context of the act. Does this permissible meaning create or produce a substantive effect that is compatible with the rest of the law? And the court says, yes, because petitioners interpretation would destabilize the insurance market in any state with a federal exchange, thus creating a death spiral that, that Congress basically designed the act to avoid. And I'm not going into a lot of detail here, but One of the big things that they talk about in this case is that Congress designed this act, and it was based off of the Massachusetts Act, and this is getting way too much in detail, but I'm going to say it real quick. Um, And the way this act was designed was that it was designed to promote everyone to buy health insurance so that you don't have simply the people that actually need health insurance buying it and therefore raising premiums like crazy because they're using a ton of health insurance and thus creating what? The courts and pundits and everyone else is called a death spiral, basically torpedoing the exchanges. And so the court says, reading the statute the way that petitioners want us to read it will basically create this death spiral. And the entire act was designed to avoid a death spiral. So reading this one line in the context of the whole act and in the context of um, the act saying such exchanges referring to both state and federal exchanges as if they're on par. You know, really, we can't go with what petitioners saying here, and we have to go with the fact that these um, federal exchanges also grant tax credits. So that was basically King v. Burwell and why it mattered in a deference context. Really interesting case, basically created an exception to Chevron, right? I mean, I think that exception might have always been there because Loving- did sort of refer to it, but now we have an exception where really the application of a statute is judged by the court and not by the agency, even where there is ambiguity in the statute, where it's a question of deep economic and political significance. And if there's anything today that is, you know, of deep economic and political significance, it's the Affordable Care Act.
0: But, you know, and Rick, that's interesting because uh, you know, I mean, just think about it in the context of what we're doing here. I mean, so we've got, you know, now we've got this essentially this exception to applying Chevron deference, and it's going to depend on this this undefined, subjective uh, measure, right? Of deep public, and, and I, we all know. I think it's hard it'd, hard. it'd be hard to debate that this doesn't fall within that. Yeah. Um, you know, really hard. But I guess you could think about it like you know where is the bar there and, and how does, how, how may that change with, you know, who's on the court and et cetera. Right. I mean that that's definitely a subjective determination. And so it, it's just interesting to me how that's going to, it be, it'll, it'll be interesting in the coming years to see how that being used as a threshold to applying this, essentially this non Chevron uh, rule to interpretation Um Will 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 play out. I just I think it's interesting. It's very uh, you know it's an interesting take on it. Um, regardless of how you feel about, and we're not here to express opinions on how we feel either way about this issue. But it's just interesting that you know that Loving laid the foundation or, or, or mentioned I should say in, in their step one analysis using Chevron, talking about um, this public interest uh, you know thing etc. And then you know then they here in this case. Uh, they, you know, went on you know, went on and took that even you know further. And and again, they they go through you know they go through a good analysis here. I mean, they go through the, they they definitely just like loving. They focus on context, right? Yeah. So that's big, you know. That's big because you know as much as you can say state versus this versus that, you know. And we all have our opinions on that. Um, it is interesting to to know just for 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 practice purposes when you're looking at this deference. I mean, there's there's definitely. Uh, a big part of it that looks like these courts are going to apply—you know—they're going to look at these individual provisions within the context, right? It's like you know—it's kind of like the the, uh, the the optional completeness rule in evidence, right? It's like not just looking at a line; it's got to, you got to look at the line from the deposition and context of the whole thing, right? Um, so, yeah. it, interesting, right? It's and it's interesting to see how they went through the practical ramifications, yeah. Of, yeah. Uh, of that. So. And anyway. and
1: I'll and I'll mention this, Lee. Um, just as far as the uh, deep economic and political significance quote that I said, um, the court does actually say this. It says um, the tax credits are among the act's key reforms involving billions of dollars in spending each year and affecting the price of health insurance for millions of people. I mean, that's pretty deep economic. And political significance, right?
0: Oh yeah, uh, yeah. And I, I don't think you can debate it on this one. I just, I'm interested to know, you know, where that very subjective.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's that's obvious, yeah. right? In this case, it's obvious. What well, well, it'll be interesting to see if that's ever used in a case that's less obvious, you know, yeah. when, when that doesn't involve billions of dollars and a divisive political issue.
0: Yeah. Well, hey, it's why we have jobs, man.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, because it's never certain, and uh, if it was, I mean. Yeah. Uh, anyway, but um, okay. and
1: and one of the big things that we should mention here, talking about this defrauds, is just um, how how much it evolves, and that's what that's the reason we still have jobs, right? Like this case is literally from a couple months ago. I mean, it was decided on June twenty fifth of this year. So, yeah, uh, I
0: mean,
1: keeps changing. I'll-
0: yeah, it keeps changing, yeah. I mean, in these other cases we talked about, Home Concrete, at 2012 case, uh, you know, I mean, this all, all this stuff has happened. Everything we talked about here, with uh, with the exception of, I believe, Skidmore, which was from the 40s, right? Yeah. Um, a lot of this stuff is fairly recent, and recent in law terms. I mean, you know, Chevron's, you know, a 1984 yeah. case, 30 years, but... You know, that's not that much time when you think about how much this has evolved.
1: I mean, I think basically all of these cases are from the last 15 years outside of Chevron and Skidmore. Um, so, yeah, it's all fairly new, and a lot of it has actually come out since we were in law school. So we didn't even learn this stuff in law school. So we have to keep up by actually doing research.
0: Oh, yeah, and I think that's, that's a great thing about, you know, what we try to do in this podcast for our, for our listeners uh, as much as for ourselves because, you know, it's a great way to keep up. Uh, you know, on your own is, is, is to try to keep keep that, keep, you know, keep them informed on these things as, as they evolve. So um, hopefully yeah. that's what they're getting.
1: And actually a cool note that I want to mention was um, we did Home Concrete in the last episode, but I was living in D.C. when Home Concrete was argued and I was uh, fortunate enough to be in oral arguments when they did the oral arguments for Home Concrete. And for those of you that have never been to a Supreme Court oral argument, especially on a tax case where you actually know the issues and can follow along, it's really cool. Um, one of those things where I was like, "Wow, this is really cool." Being a lawyer and being here and experiencing this.
0: Awesome. I, I think I think not many tax lawyers would associate the word "very cool" with, uh, <laughs> with tax, but I think it'd be hard to it'd be hard to disagree for anyone that you know sitting in something like that. Uh, wouldn't be at least very interesting.
1: Yeah, well, that's why you and I do a tax court podcast, Lee. We're not like
0: most tax lawyers. That's true, that's true. Yeah. All right, Rick, but hey, what about what about the Dominion Resources case? Are you familiar with that case? Uh,
1: yeah, I, I've read it. I didn't include it in this podcast just cause, or in my presentation just because there's so many cases, but um, yeah, I've read it. it. It actually has to do with um, – Treasury regulations and the APA and that that stuff, right? Um, am I right there? Yeah, am I recalling yeah, that correctly. Exactly,
0: that's exactly right. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. Why, why don't uh, I? You know, I don't have notes on on it in front of me or anything. Why don't if you do? Why don't you go ahead and tell the audience about it?
0: Yeah, real quick, and this is going to be a real short version, guys. Uh, it's just it just brings up something interesting uh, with the environment today. So, so by way of background. The Administrative Procedure Act permits a court to uh, set aside agency action, findings, conclusions, etc., uh, if it determines that the rule in question is either arbitrary, capricious, or an abuse of discretion, or otherwise not in accordance with the law. And we've talked about that. Or it fails to comply with the procedural requirements uh, described above, and it describes some procedural requirements. Now that that is in the APA, which is which is at uh, 5 U.S.C. 706 d uh, 706 D. Big D, um, that's where that comes from. Uh, so, so Dominion Resources, uh, that case deals with with that provision, and it kind of illustrates how uh, these these provisions in the APA are are probably going to have in this post Mayo world that we live in today, where everything is you know tax is not special. This this may be, may come to play a bigger part uh, on federal tax administration. So. Um, let me just – so Dominion Resources, uh, it was a, a case that went up to the Federal Circuit from the Court of Claims. Uh, it, it reviewed a uh, – the, the court reviewed an interest capitalization rule under the uh, 263 regulations. Uh, the specific one is 1.263A-11E1, 2 little i, big B. Uh, but anyway, it was an interest capitalization rule uh, that had been um, put, put, put up in a regulation – and uh, it was upheld by the Court of Federal Claims. Well, when they got up to the Federal Circuit, the court struck down the regulation uh, under Step Two of the Chevron analysis, saying that it was it was uh, it wasn't a reasonable interpretation of the underlying statute uh, under Step Two. But more importantly, uh, for for our discussion here, uh, the Federal Circuit also determined that the regulation was invalid under the Administrative Procedure Act because the Treasury Department had failed to provide a reasoned explanation of the regulation. Uh, so a little background there, in a case called State Farm, uh, and the cite on that, it's known as State Farm, the cite on that is um, 463 U.S. 29. Uh, it's a 1983 case. Well, that case, in that case, the Supreme Court held that an agency pronouncement uh, can be arbitrary and capricious and therefore invalid under the Administrative Procedure Act unless the agency examines the relevant data and articulates a satisfactory explanation for its action. So um, the court, while it didn't find it didn't strike the regulation on that ground, it determined that the regulation was invalid. Uh, under the APA, based on the fact that the Treasury Department has failed to provide a reasoned explanation for the regulation uh, as it was required to. So, the the takeaway here, Rick, um, is not so much in the facts, et cetera, obviously, which we hardly provided any. Uh, it's uh, it's more the fact that in this post mail world that we live in, where tax isn't special anymore, and you know, we we we, we the the Administrative Procedure Act is something that. You know, is going to come into it has a chance to come into play a lot because you know a lot of the stuff we deal with is substantive when we're talking about this deference, arbitrary, capricious, reasonable interpretation, etc. Uh, but the APA, you know, a lot of it is about process, and here is a, just a situation where procedurally, uh, you know, the agency at issue in this case, Treasury, didn't follow certain procedural steps that are required under the Administrative Procedure Act, and therefore, uh, you know that's another angle of attack uh, for the validity of a regulation right that the procedure uh, underlying its its enactment wasn't uh, uh, wasn't followed so just just wanted to throw that in there and I thought it was it was really relevant for our purposes what do you think
1: uh, yeah it really is Lee um, you know it's it's definitely an important case in this whole line of cases that we're discussing uh, so I'm actually glad you mentioned that because because I, I didn't
0: yeah no uh, yeah great uh, yeah I thought I thought it, it definitely could could uh, be useful to our listeners to kind of hear a little bit about that so um, you know maybe not
1: yeah well that's all we have on deference it was a lot three parts but we enjoyed doing it hope you guys enjoyed listening to it and as and actually um, that was the fifth sort of procedural case that we did. Um, we were going to do 10 procedural cases and basically we're we're doing this podcast in blocks uh, and we were going to do five procedural cases, take a little break, do another five procedural cases, but we're going to come back next time with a viewer request or a listener request. So stay tuned for that. It's sort of a special episode, but hopefully you guys have enjoyed these first five uh topics of the podcast, of these procedural things that happen in the tax law and in the tax court. And I guess I'll do it for that. I'm Rick Thackerar. As always, you can find out more about me at Thacralawfirm.com And then there is Lee Wilson with me, and you can find out more about Lee at TheWilsonLawfirmPllc.com. plc.com.
0: First of all, it's not the Wilson Law Firm. It is the Wilson Firm, PLLC.com, and everyone here remembers he said the last time he had a post-it note, and I guess he lost his post-it note or his dog ate it or something because it's clearly not in front of him or he can't read, but I, didn't you guys send some hesitation there that he might have forgotten my name?
1: <laughs>
0: there was a little I, hesitation there. I think I,
1: There's <laughs> a lot going on today, Lee. There's a lot to remember. <laughs>
0: okay okay well this is this stuff is pretty deep and as you've seen we've broken it up in three parts and like rick said real quick i definitely think you should listen in next time i think it'll be interesting it'll be a bit off the beaten path but uh and a little bit longer than than the normal episodes we try to break them up uh into you know no no more than 30 minutes or so uh this will be a little bit longer but i think that you'll really enjoy it uh you know because it's definitely going to be different it'll probably keep your attention though
1: yeah and we should we should mention that we've already started researching it and it's it's super interesting
0: it is absolutely okay well you want to sign us off again partner
1: uh yeah well thanks for listening and join us next week have a good one all right
0: guys see you